Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day. All right. Welcome, everybody. Episode 237 of the Galen Trombley Show. My guest today is Brett Wilmot. And I've been wanting to have Brett on for a while. Uh, big into, you know, the fitness space, track and field space, the Olympic space. So some titles. And then I'll let Brett kind of build off of this. But head strength and conditioning coach at Plattsburgh State. Associate coach of the track and field at Plattsburgh State. In the USA, uh, bobsled and skeleton start coach. Did I say that correct? Correct. Okay, not too bad, right? <laughs> That's perfect. So, Brett, for people that do not know, you got a very, um, you know, you, you have a quite the accolades and, and the the resume um, for multiple colleges and pro sports and, and things like that. Um, but people that don't know you, kind of give us a background. Who are you? Where'd you come from? How'd you get here? Yeah, sure. As Jen greeted me at the front door, we started to catch up again on you know where we're all from and. Uh, based on our educations and so forth. So yeah, I'm, I'm a Western New Yorker. So I grew up a little bit outside of Buffalo in a town called Oakfield and uh, just off of I-90 there and was fortunate to have a, a upbringing from two educators. Uh, one of them was an athletic director. So I followed him around and locked doors at night type of thing and uh, went through smelly lockers and cleaned up a little bit here and there. Uh, so I got some of the management type of things down at a early, very early age, probably your children's age at the time. And then my mom was a second grade teacher, uh, forever and ever. And she always stayed consistent with that role. And, uh, you know, so I was born and raised with a dinner table that was constantly busy five o'clock on until they were satisfied with, you know, their curriculum for the next day. Uh, so little did I know, and I had a, uh, older sister, Terry, who's an occupational therapist and, uh, my younger brother's phys ed and, and coach it. And they're both living in Webster, New York. So they haven't strayed from Western New York, but anyways, uh, you know, I, I learned some of those virtues. Little did I know through my high school years when I was really paying attention and had all these dreams of state trooper or, uh, I remember my 12th grade um, architects, architectural design teacher was a super influence on me. And I said, oh, I think I'm going to change my major now. I'm going to get into architecture. And uh, once I got into college and I you know, competed and I studied in the field of criminal justice, uh, my coach was amazing. Uh, he was a distance type of guy who, um, for one example, had a triple jump All-American. Okay. So I thought to myself, was this at Plattsburgh? This was right here. Yep. Scott, okay. Scott Slate. Uh, okay. and he was a professor as well of exercise science and, um, everything started to rush back to me from high school into my, uh, you know, college career where, gosh, I had all these unbelievable influences and no matter what subject matter it was. And, uh, it just kind of filtered into being sports and my coach, here at college, Scott's late. He said, well, you know, what are you doing? You know, after you graduate, 
I said, well, I'm not exactly sure. I'm going to take the trooper's test. I might, you know, start my master's, what have you. And he said, well, why don't you, why don't you coach with me? Because he knew, I, I think he knew I had a keen interest in, you know, what he was doing. And I think he knew I had the background from my father and from all my great coaches at Oakfield uh, when I attended high school. Uh, so uh, 28 years later, here I am now. And so I'm starting my 28th year of coaching as we speak, and I'm excited, and I don't know when I'm going to stop. <laughs> so uh, have you you've coached all the way since then? Like that's, that's always been the career path? Yes. Okay. And, and so I want to go back. So high school, um, I know that you were recently, right, inducted to the Hall of Fame? Yep, five, I think it's five. Yep, five years ago now. So, so. What, what was that in or for? Yeah, that's the Oakville, Alabama Central School Hall of Fame. Uh, it's a pretty cool setup where you are inducted by your peers. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think every year, uh, you know, and now I start to see the emails where, hey, if you have ideas and thoughts on who would be the next recommendation for an induction, please go ahead and forward that. And uh, so it's a nice system. You don't necessarily have to be athlete-driven or anything like that. I've I've had some amazing uh, classmates also be inducted in you know the science field or you know philanth- okay. philanthropy and stuff like that. So and you got inducted for which was it sports? Yeah, pr- probably the sports aspect. I mean, again, it was a full range of reasonings why they you know in, oh, that's inducted cool. me so I was so was it necessarily a sports hall of fame so like really it took like the well-roundedness of you and said like this is a good representation of our school and community correct oh that's cool oh i like that um so and then at plattsburgh what was your what sport did you play at plattsburgh i mean obviously track and field but like what modalities or what were you you know races or sure so i arrived uh, interestingly enough and uh this is where you know, you should never say never as a prospect that arriving, I thought, well, gee, you know, I was born and raised in basketball predominantly. So I was always attached to the basketball. I went to camps, you know, I listened to great coaches speak and I was totally motivated by that sport for all the reasons, whether I had a defensive style coach or an offensive minded person. Uh, it was it was a great upbringing in my household. My grandfather played for Syracuse uh, before the war, World War II. Okay. And um, by the way, the my niece is fourth generation NCAA, since since my father also played for Brockport State, uh, and and so uh, going back, uh, I've just been influenced by uh, basketball m- mostly. And when I arrived here, I said, "Well, we have a JV team." And I, did, I didn't even know about that. I wasn't recruited, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried to walk on, and we played some pickup ball in September, and I made a self-evaluation. And I said, gee whiz, I mean, these guys are faster. They're quicker. You know, I was still growing. I grew four inches and put on 15 pounds my freshman year. Oh, wow. And uh, I said, yeah, this is probably not, you know, the best idea for me. I threw an alley-oop to the top player in practice one day, Noopy Snell. Uh, but, uh, it never, any, nothing transpired after that when the JV guard really stopped me on every time down the court yeah. I said, yeah, it's probably not for me. Uh, and so luckily my roommate and I, uh, Derek Svensson from Bemis point, New York. So he's a Fredonia okay. native. So we're both Western New Yorkers. Yep. He and I would train, uh, and go to the field house and so forth. And luckily one of the track and field seniors actually recruited us. And so the next day we walked into Memorial Hall and I spoke with Scott Slade and uh, he, all he said was, do you have trainers? 
And I said, yes. He goes, then I'll see you tomorrow, you know, four o'clock for practice. So, so from then on, the rest is history. And, uh, you know, we continue to help him grow the program because Scott was new to Plattsburgh. Yep. And so we were, he called us the scrubs and he meant that in a good way. And back then you can kind of you got away with it. Kid that, yeah, you get yeah. kid. So we, we understood what scrubs meant, and uh, it actually motivated us to get better. I was going to say, like, like, first year, yeah, like your rookies. Um, right. So right. when you were in college, or sorry, when you were in high school, were you in track and field at all, or just primarily basketball? No, no, I, yeah, I played tennis, and uh, I, I went out for cross country because back in the olden times, we would say, run cross country to prepare yourself for basketball better. Mm-hmm. Now, in a, going back, my coach Jones was a defensive-minded coach, and I knew that because I went to camps with him and all that good stuff. And so I knew we needed to be ready physically for his vigor. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, cross country was the way to go because I, th- I think I'm going public with this, that my cross country coach may have been tougher by a millimeter more than coach Jones. So I said, all right, well, if I can be prepared by a tougher guy, still shoot a little hoops and run 30 miles a week. <laughs> I'll be ready for Coach Jones. <laughs> so, so I was gonna say, so you did have the track and field background, a little bit of cross country background before going to Plastic State. Yeah, a little bit. I, I think it came more so from my, uh, well, I guess equally from my physical education background. I mean, my my teachers in uh, school were excellent. I mean, when we had a unit of soccer, which we did not have at Oakfield, Alabama, uh, we played hard. I mean, the football guys and the cross, that's all we had was football and cross country. Mm-hmm. So when we had a unit like soccer, we went at it 100% for that 17 minutes we had in phys ed before we had to hit the showers. Yeah. Uh, so I was very fortunate not only to have my father being an athletic director at a neighboring school, but also to have those physical education teachers who, you know, exposed us to lacrosse. And this is 1989, yeah. 1990, yep. and we were cross country skiing in winter. Uh, and so, you know, th- this whole chameleon type of process really helped prepare me for, I guess, the mother of all sports track and field. So when you, um, what, what's your, and I kind of backtrack on this, but what's your feelings um, on like the general, or say like a well-rounded athlete playing a lot of sports or being like a specialist in a sport? Because right now, and this might be jumping the gun because I know we're going to go into a lot of stuff, but like you work, you know, a lot right now with high level athletes or higher level athletes that are, you know, they have one sport. They don't, they're not playing basketball on the side of track and field or, or skeleton. Um, what, what do you find that the development of an athlete from like being well-rounded? Cause when we played, we played multiple, multiple sports. And then, you know, now you see so many kids going into like, I'm only play soccer or lacrosse or basketball. Like, how do you find one, is that true? Do you find that like the pros and cons of that? Do you have a preference one way or the other? I think along the trail, uh, I, I had met, I guess on the wayward side of it, along the trail, I, I met a, uh, athletic medicine person who, um, you know, he's gone off onto his own training folks mm-hmm. and he's really focused on, and as, as they just won two nil the other day is the men's soccer program in the United States. He was thinking to himself, well, if we have these thousands of Olympic development boys in the country, uh, you know, aspiring to be an Olympic level soccer athlete, Mm -hmm. well, why are we not winning medals? And so what I think what he's trying to do now is find out why we're playing soccer all year round. And yet we're not yielding some of the top players on the planet Hmm. 
to a degree where we can uh, podium anyways at either World Cup or the Olympic Games. So I, I think what he's getting at, and his name escapes me for the moment, he's, he's a Cortland grad, spent some time in Vermont working with a ski company. Now he's in Philadelphia trying to help not only you know, 13-year-olds train properly, mm-hmm. but also figure out why those Olympic development you know, those trying to make the cut for the world cup team. Yeah. Why are they injured? Why are we not performing, et cetera? So what it boils down to is some of my theorists that I follow talk about doing too much of the same thing. So that sounds like a general statement to Mm -hmm. be made, but when you really think about that, uh, and Mark Hickok, my trainer that I worked with for 10 years over in Vermont, he talked about, you know, I asked him one day, I said, Mark, did you enjoy the game? And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I go, Did, what do you think about that game-winning shot or whatever the case was? He goes, oh, no, no. He goes, I don't think of it like that. I look at the game as a movement screen. So anytime a player makes a cut, for example, I'm looking at their foot versus a fan, a common fan would say, once that athlete made the cut, what do they do? Do they shoot or do they drive or do they pass? Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, that changed the way I viewed sports forever. It'll always be ingrained in my mind to flip on women's uh, softball mm-hmm. division one championships and watch it for base stealing or the way the pitcher is bending and turning and you know, yeah. exploding toward the catcher with the pitch and release. And so that's kind of where, you know, that's kind of where I am. I kind of lost my train of thought there, but I, I think watching athletes specialize uh, that concerns me. I'm not saying that it can't be done, but going back to what you and I are saying, uh, there are coaches even in football right now, division one football that prefer to recruit multi-sport athletes, such as a basketball player uh, and so on. Well, I I find it was two things. There's, you know, the overuse injuries, if you're using stuff over and over again and not properly recover, recovering or doing the strength and conditioning to support that movement. And then number two, the mental burnout too, of just like I play all the time. And again, when you start looking at younger kids, you know, and, and whether this is, I mean, you hope it's the kid wanting to do it and not the parent or some or someone making them feel like they have to do it. But I feel like the burnout part of it, of just playing at a young age is like, you see a lot of kids get really good. And by the time they graduate co- high school to go into college, like, I'm kind of good. Like I've, I don't, I like the sport. I'm really good at it, but it's not like a burning desire to play. So I think you have a little bit of that. And then I, I mean, I, from when, when I was a kid, I just remember everybody played multiple sports. And I feel like if you picked up, like if you told someone that played three different sports or four different sports, like, Hey, here's a, here's a pickleball paddle. Like that's become very popular. Now go play pickleball. I find those athletes can pick it up quicker than if you had someone that's like, I'm a professional level basketball player. Or, you know, and there's, I mean, there's obviously some correlation with hand-eye, co- hand-eye coordination, athleticism, and agility, but there's still the aspect of, you know, I've seen people that are, are really good at soccer, but can't throw a ball and vice versa, where it's like they just, so I don't know if that's good or bad. Obviously, specialization, you get to perfect that craft more because again, like in your sport, when you're talking like going out, you know, or the, I, is the proper term pushing for bobsled and, and skeleton? Like the star is called pushing. So when you're Mm -hmm. pushing, I mean, that's a very, you know, there's a lot of technique and it's a, you know, it's not that long of a a process. I mean, I'm talking what a handful of seconds before they're actually in and going. And then you look, same thing at track and field where you're like, you're trying to, you know, go out say you're running, you're going out of the blocks. Like it's a very, 
there's a ton of technique on it that the more you get better at it, you would think that you'd have an edge over someone that's not as maybe doesn't have the details that you're talking about. Um, and again, if you're, that's your only sport, it may not matter. Like if you're really good at track and field, you may not need to be able to shoot a basketball. Um, do you find that it really matters? Do you find like at a certain point sports in general, if you're a good athlete, you, you pretty much can tap out at a certain point and you're okay. Meaning you don't need to have all the extras of a well-rounded athlete. The fun part in my profession currently, uh, and I guess in this chapter mm-hmm. is that, and uh, coincidentally, Chris Waterbury is in charge on campus of uh, assigning interns from our, basically it's our exercise science program yep. major. And I've had seven in the last two semesters, folks, and uh, super smart. I mean, they're well prepared um, from the physiology, biomechanic textbook. and Kinesiology. And, correct. Yeah. And, and even from a management standpoint where... If you run a building, this is the business that you need to, business model that you need to accomplish to be successful and all those good things. So anyways, not to get off the subject again, but their their view is important to me because it's, gener- I mean, it's becoming generational mm-hmm. based on what it is you're, you're uh, asking here. And um, so one, one of the, it might've been a freezing cold snowing sideways type of day. And everyone was kind of like down in the dumps a little bit. Like they had to trudge 6am to get to me in the weight room. And, (laughs) and I, I posed, basically I posed this question and I said, Hey guys, as coaches, we have to judge our student athletes. We have to look at them and say, well, what, what does this human bring to the table? Are they going to be a guard? Are they going to be a forward? Whatever. Are they going to be a role player from the bench? Okay. Wouldn't it be wise to know their resume? If we're recruiting them, wouldn't it be wise to know their resume and know what their physical movement background might be? Because you don't know if they were dancers or if they were a landscaper because is, is that, or is that not athletic? And with my upbringing, that's athletic to me because we're moving, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. And so what I what I uh, recommended to them was that with, with my track and field athletes, especially, and skeleton bobsled, since as you pointed out, it is very linear, it is mostly in line, and you're applying a great deal of force over a short period of time, mm-hmm. minus distance running, uh, that I need to know. I, I need to know as a recruiting coach if they've done track and field all their life because they could have done cross country indoor and outdoor and then they come to me or they could have done soccer basketball you know whatever the combination might be and outdoor only Mm -hmm. i say only uh, but know that i have a trackie i I affectionately call them a trackie because that's what they've done all their life they've pretty much gone down the runway into a pit or they've given me a multi-directional background and we're translating those type of skills and forces and so on into the blocks, as you stated. Mm-hmm. So I have to know the difference between one and the other, and then it goes to the injury um, piece. Okay, who's more at risk for injury? I don't know. What is now? We're getting into some deeper, yeah, very nuanced, thought yeah. Where Jason Pactor and Lisa Vicencio mm-hmm. and and John and I, we all talk about that in 
the office this large uh, up at the field house that okay what you know what is their uh, what you know what is their 24-hour life pattern okay do we get them for an hour do we get them for 90 minutes or do we get them for two hours well what are they doing for 22 other hours what's their hygiene mm-hmm. for life so all those things kind of play into it and then we say okay we're you know what do they love to do have they been playing soccer all their lives all year round they get to us and they just give you that posture where oh i gotta go to practice again today so I mean, do you have a preference as as to like what you would get from say a recruit? I or don't. Does it not matter. It just kind of like it depends on how you approach it and how you kind of form or mold your approach, technique, philosophy to them. Right, and and I think I I don't. I, I'm unbiased when it comes to that. Um, I mean, if I looked in my past, if I created the Coach Willie Hall of Fame mm-hmm. for my 28 years. Uh, yeah, it would be hard to discern whether they were a multi, I would probably tip the scale to multi-sport athletes over the trackies as the, you know, highest aspiring student athlete, um, or, you know, skeleton bobsledder. Um, but you know, certainly I would be able to fill the list with, with trackies who had just done it all year, you know, all year round for mm, five or six years. So when you get, so let's, you know, kind of, uh, the athletes you've worked with. So what's, what's roughly the age range of the athletes you work primarily with? Like, is it, cause obviously I know you're going into the Olympic age now. So like, you know, you're talking, I'm assuming 18 year olds up to what would probably be, you know, mid thirties maybe. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd bump the scale up a little bit higher. Okay. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of boys I had worked with this past summer that were, you know, 18, actually twins from Utah. Uh, but a- after that, uh, it's, it's probably more the age range of 21 to, you know, 30. Okay. Yeah. So when you, when you get a college, um, so I guess kind of, kind of talk about the, the three different, you know, titles we'll call like that strength and conditioning track and field, and then, um, bobsled and skeleton. Like how do those all fit? Uh, where are you at right now with involvement in all of those and kind of what's your role in each category? Sure. I'll start with the strength and conditioning piece. And, uh, it's a fun one. I mean, I, Maybe the morning for most people isn't so much fun, but with class schedules and so forth, you know, that's where we have to live. So, mm-hmm. you know, the morning um, groups come in. Right now we're a little bit on austerity, like an austerity type of situation, a contingency plan, just because Memorial is an exciting place and uh, should be finished by October. We're going to dive more into that. Yeah, yeah. all said and done, yep. and I'll hold, I'll hold back on that. So we, we've had to wiggle a little bit with our programming, and I think that's actually helping the interns even more see you know, how we need to be dynamic in our programming. But, but anyhow, we're making it work, and um, you know, we're able to service uh, most all the athletes um, just by you know, or staying organized in the morning uh, with that. Um, and we, I guess I go ahead. What was you say? What time, what time is, um, like the first student in the gym at? Yeah. Well, like I mean, 5 a.m. 6 yeah, a.m. Yeah. Women's volleyball, uh, had been in right around six, six fifteen a.m. And you get there yeah. at what time roughly? Yeah. She'll, you know, based on my track and field schedule, mm-hmm. uh, she'll, Kelsey will come in before me and get, get them started. Okay. Just because the end of my day is more stretched. Yep. And so, yeah. Um, so, um, r- roughly like what's the schedule when students, so you're getting full teams that come in right at, at a time, typically like they got a block of time and these are, you know, women's volleyball or here's, you know, like I said, men's baseball or whatever. Right. It goes in certain, 
it depends on want to have open time uh, with less of the student population in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, we will get there. We'll definitely be... Like de- an athlete-only area? Right. It, yep. It'll be exactly that. And we'll be able to uh, service them much better with the open space that we'll, we'll have. But for now, Matt Salvatore, the fitness center director, he's done a super job of creating a space that's good for everyone. And uh, even to a point where the cardiovascular pieces are in the neighboring room, which will eventually just be an open stretching room. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're trying to do the best we can to serve everyone, but typically we'll be more in groups versus a full team. And I, I get a chance to weigh that out, whether that's effective or not. And so far it's been great because we're able to have a better student to teacher ratio, if yeah. you will, yeah. and, and have eyes on, um, you know, good technique, poor technique, whatever the case may be. So when, when, uh, these athletes come into college, how what percentage of them do you think have a background in strength and conditioning and which ones are kind of like very green to it? And like, we never did this in high school. I've just got through with playing and being athletic. Yeah, that's a great uh, question that we get that a lot with uh, the sports that we uh, sponsor at Plattsburgh state. Since we don't have football football. And again, my brother coaches football Webster Schrader back in Western New York. And so, you know, they're a bigger team and that's mm-hmm. just the facts of life where, you know, they'll take up more space in the, in the weight room that they have designed for the school. Um, so other teams aren't really able to get in there that much. I don't know how much coaches really subscribe into the weight room anyhow. So it's, it's highly likely that most of them have not stepped into a weight room before, which is kind of nice because then they come in with an open, you know, open mindset. Yeah. Zero bad habits for the most part, right? You kind of go and mold them and yes, proper technique. and Right. I think the only bad habit that they may bring in, and this is probably a fraction of the group, is that they have some preconceived notions from, you know, all that they're exposed to on social media and so forth. What about uh, movement mechanics? When, when athletes come in and they try to move, and like I said, again, if they're playing a certain sport, and that sport maybe is not conducive to strength and conditioning, or they might have some limitations or... Um, you know, maybe some, I mean, as you know, like you get an athlete, maybe has some weak hips or weak knees or weak, you know, shoulders or whatever. I mean, different weaknesses, weak core, like it can translate to injuries and and everything else. So like, how would you take a, some athletes that really have never done this before and good athlete, but then prevent the injuries and and make them a better athlete and safer? Yeah. Ongoingly, that is what drives me Mm -hmm. in this part of the discipline so between you know jay and john and lisa uh, i like to think of each student athlete as the middle of a triangulation so you have the coach you have the strength coach and you have the athletic medicine team mm-hmm. and th- this holds true with skeleton and bobsled as well and i i let everyone know that uh just because i'm programming and i'm coaching on the floor as one of the um, coaches I look up to says boots on the ground, coach Willie, your boots on the ground for us. Yeah. Uh, that, um, you know, we're doing that even as you sit here, Galen, I'm watching that you're a little bit protracted. I got terrible posture. I would like you to retract a little bit and show me some, there you go. That's uh, I'm not even going to have you like, I mean, you, you would have a field day with me because I've always had like rounded shoulders and I go back and even when I was working out very consistently, I still had a rounded like shoulder. Which I don't know what caused. I mean, again, I'm sure it's just a deficient like strength on some part of my body. But well, it's yeah, I should be going like absolutely. And I and I tell my father all the time, who still, I mean, he's you know north of 75, and you know he's six, seven, eight handicapped still. 
and uh, he'll either ask me or I'll say, Dad, you know, <laughs> straighten up or make sure you take a break. So that's or, why I suck at golf. <laughs> I got the, I got the hunched over. I, that's all I, I don't need to swing fat. I just need I need that better posture. But yeah. <laughs> so 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 it's and and I probably drive my wife nuts and I I do. So Allison, forgive me. But <laughs> everything's a movement screen, but that's the coach in the blood. Yep. Is I'm trying to drive humans to be better and if we can find one little thing that also keeps them off the training table, mm-hmm. that's what we're going to do. Uh, and so hopefully that. That makes answers. sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when you like, when you work with uh, different, like, again, you kind of talked about the coach, you got the, I'm assuming the, uh, well, I know you're talking about like the, um, what's the title? Like Jay's title, athletic uh, trainer. Like yep. Athletic athletic, trainer? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So athletic trainer, strength and conditioning. So when you look at all that, I mean, in theory, you never want to use Jay. Like, it would be a great world if you never had to use him, meaning everybody's healthy and not injured and stuff, which is not realistic. He's, he's definitely needed. But when you start working amongst those three, like, what what level of – because you have the head coach. And, like, and when you get the athletes, are they pretty much very hands-off? We trust you, take, and do what you want. Do you get input from coaches? Do you get input from Jay or vice versa? Like, what's, the, I guess, the communication triangle amongst the, the three, whatever those positions are at any given time? Yeah, since I'm one of those coaches as well, I guess I could speak to yeah. that relationship between Jay, Lisa, John, and myself, and even the in- interns that work with them, uh, is that I trust that I want them to clear my human. I want them to say, yes, they are ready for the next step because we have gone through this protocol and feel that they're cleared to go. I trust them all the way. Uh, even in a championship situation, I want them to be ready to go because as you can imagine, track and field, we're probably more 90% to perform versus in basketball. If you could play, since I play basketball, mm-hmm. you could be more 80%, still play defense, make a contribution on offense and still get up and down the floor. You might, you know, your wrist, your wrist might be sore, so you're not going to shoot great. So you could pass off Yeah, uh, that type of thing. So, so yeah, I really okay. rely on them wholeheartedly. Uh, now the joy in what I do, and this sounds maybe backwards, but I enjoy really working with all the different coaches from different sports, maybe because of my, uh, you know, upbringing and seeing how my father Father, managed, you know, high, you know, high achieving football team, girls, uh, girls basketball was awesome. The girls softball team was awesome at Elba central school in Western New York. (laughs) And so it, it was, it was always interesting to watch how he managed those different personalities as coaches and uh, the feedback that he would get from them, you know, at the good old dinner table in, in Oakfield. So anyhow, but I, I do enjoy finding out what the coaches need and they want for their program. You know, I do my best to drop by and watch their games. So mm-hmm. I do get that movement screen to happen mm-hmm. and then also give them my feedback. Uh, but yeah, I mean, most of them are great and they really want me to just go, you know, take them and go. What a... Uh... Do you find there's a difference between like the men's and women's sports or even just different sports, like the soccer team from the track team to the basketball team? Like, do you find like whether it's culture of like a team? Um, I mean, I feel like, you know, track and field can be more individualized at times. And then you get like a hockey team in there and they're so quick and always passing and relying on each other. Like, do you kind of speak to that a little bit about the different types of athletes and then men's sports and women's sports? Is there, do you find that there's much of a difference there? 
Yeah, sure. Like how you coach, I guess, or how you train. Yeah, sure. And uh, th- this year was great for that. Uh, and the first full year in my role yeah. is to uh, not view, as you put it, ice hockey or some of the women's sports, the same as I look at track and field and the motivations within. Mm-hmm. And so, which, you know, I have to, you know, again, I have to abide by NCAA rules too, because in certain stages of, you know, their seasons, the sports seasons, it's voluntary. So I, I can't say, hey, you need to be there at 6.30 or 7 a.m. Or It's more like, hey, here's your orientation because it's a meeting based on the programming that I set forward. Ask me questions. I will be there, by the way, 7 a.m. till, you know, 10, 10, 11 a.m. So come down and we'll have a session. However, if they're in season, then we can be more structured and I can go ahead and administer and be fault correct with their technique and, and so forth. So if an athlete comes in at a season, it's more of like they, it's, if they want you, they, they ask for you. So it's, well, the, and again, through the coaches, uh, you know, I set forth the programming. So it is as much year round as we possibly can. Yep. And so, right. When they're on the floor, I can, you know, any questions from the orientation, they get it, they go, and then I'm able to, I'm still legally able to coach. Do you find that, uh, are, are kids receptive to that? They want to have you more hands on? Yeah, I think, I think they do. Uh, and then of course there are those who I'm fine, you know, I'm, very much good to go as a solo, you know. Um, do you find there's, how do you like that? Would you prefer to be hands-on or do you find that some of them just need a little bit of guidance and then maybe some correction here and there, but ultimately they're very self-sufficient? Yeah, I, th- I think as you look at the age groups, uh, you know, the first comers or the first year, um, second year, third, fourth, you know, particularly men's ice hockey, they're, uh, they typically have come from some type of strength coach. Yep. Uh, they're usually a little older, right? Because they've loved and played juniors and stuff. So they come in not at 18, they might come in at like 20, 21. Yes. Yes. So, so they're, they're fun to work with in their own way. Mm -hmm. So there's little things that you just tweak with them and, and off they go. Uh, and, uh, and even so the interns will say, well, coach, you know, why is the depth of movement not there? And I'll say, well, I mean, they just came off of a, you know, road trip and maybe they still have the bus in their hips. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, let them work through that. Uh, But no, I see what you're saying. We should probably cue that eventually if we see there's not any improvement, you know, let them work through it. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the first years, they really need everything because as we mentioned before, you know, it's likely that they did not have any type of weight room experience, no matter what, um, however you define that to be. So, um, again, when you're correcting like faults, like what, what level of, cause you talk about like hips or tight hips or anything like, do you focus, is that your job to help with the stretching aspect or do you like recovery and stuff? Like where does that come in? Or is that more on like the athletic training? Yeah. So two, two pieces on that are, uh, now we're getting philosophical here. Mm-hmm. Warning, uh, warning. I was gonna say I have coaching philosophy, okay. so we're going to go in a lot of this. So okay, yeah, cool. Cool. So, so recently, uh, I'm peeling through uh, a theorist, uh, book about um, using strength and conditioning as a coordinative effort so you have these two pieces of coordination and you have strength okay well how is strength helping the you know the volleyball player on the floor is it 
actually working on the muscle belly or are we talking to the tendon in the bone? Oh, and so this theorist says, no, we're not. So we need to come up with a better plan in the weight room to make sure, uh, and I think he even alludes, or one of the theorists that together works with this theorist states that, have you ever seen a bodybuilder sprint or run? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of muscle belly going on there, but not a whole lot of dynamic happening. So as an extreme, when we're in the weight room and just lifting to lift and trying to jump by blocking and spiking and setting and digging, how is the weight room translating into those fine sk finer skills, those movement patterns? And so uh, that that's where I am right now. Whereas when I first started as a strength coach, uh, Vern Gambetta, who's a Florida-based strength coach, and I, I want to say he's probably been doing this for over 40 years, um, he was one of the first folks that I kind of latched onto. You know, those were the times when you had to run around the United States and chase these leaders yeah. in the industry. Yeah, there's no YouTube or anything. Right, yeah. right. And so uh, it was a car ride or you have to sacrifice with a plane ride. So anyway, with Vern, he would talk about five motor abilities for you as an athlete. What are the five motor abilities? And they were more separate back then. It was strength. It was coordination. It was endurance, it was flexibility, and it was speed. And underneath each of those, you could define strength as power and muscle endurance, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And speed, you can also break those out into different pieces as well. So, so now my upbringing is follow the separate five components. And now I have a new theorist, a new school of thinking, where he's saying to connect strength and coordination. So you're already taking those five biomotors and taking two and you're trying to combine them. And so that's why I take my summers wisely and sit under a tree and <laughs> on a hot summer day. Yep. And I think about how that makes sense so that we can move our humans onward and upward. So when you, when you connect all those, and again, with, with dif different athletes, like, like when you talk about like speed and, and say flexibility or speed and like how they work off of each other, like, how much of those five connect? I mean, they should all five connect in some regard, but you're going to have probably a little bit more power in certain sports versus other sports and vice versa, like speed, probably a little different in baseball than it would be in, you know, hockey or, or, or track, right? Depending on what you're trying to do or soccer speed. Yep. Correct. And so I still stay with the Vern five. So the, the five biomotor abilities, and whenever I view a different sport, I just take those five biomotor abilities and create a bar graph. And okay. I think to myself, all right, who needs, because even, even a diver, a goalie, a catcher, some of those isolated, you know, athletes who do We're, different movement patterns than a center fielder or a long swimmer mm -hmm. and so forth. I even try to look at those folks differently from someone who's on the field the whole time in soccer or basketball. Never, they never sit on the bench. Uh, so I'm constantly trying to vary the programming for them so that they're better equipped and they serve the team better than just doing the same thing that the rest of the team tries to accomplish. So, um, and, and back before with, or saying before with the like stretching and recovery aspect, like how much of it from a strength and conditioning is strength and conditioning and how much is focus on like, Hey, you know, even, even though they're younger kids, it's still like. Stretching so important, you know, just different recovery aspects, whether, you know, I'm, I'm looking at like, uh, 
whether it's foam rolling lacrosse and banded stretches, just things that kind of like loosen you up and kind of fight off, you know, knots and stuff. Um, is, is there a focus on that though, you know, as part of a program or is it more like, Hey, here's some techniques to use and kind of do it in your dorm room, you know, at night or whatever that might look like. Right. And, and here's one of the folks that I cross paths with, um, she, she actually had started mostly with Yukon and moved to Kansas and then on to Texas. And now she's back to Yukon. It's Andrea Hootie who, and she has a, uh, a great book out there on strength conditioning and, uh, talks about more, you know, what the model can be and how you can have different levels of each of these models for beginners to advanced. And, um, the reason why I bring her name up to answer your question is, um, you have to f- picture Gino Ariema's uh, practice schedule, mm-hmm. and it's probably an hour and fifty-one minutes. So some days, Coach Hootie, she might only have nine minutes in the two-hour <laughs> practice schedule to do some type of work that she thinks is important to the women's team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some days she might have twenty-one minutes to actually be in the weight room and do something f- physical. And so, uh, with, with the, uh, and you basically hit the nail right on the head with based on our limited time with student athletes, mm-hmm. you know, I think maybe from the outside looking in, you might say, well, oh, you must have two hours a day with these student athletes. And that's not, you know, it's not true. I can't name one person on my, uh, 65 man woman track and field roster that has a solid two hours to train, um, that's weight room included, mm-hmm. um, to, to get the job done. So. So there's where we try to become, uh, we try to set up this curriculum early in the season so that yes, they have good hygiene, good habits going into that study break at 1030 PM at night when no one's looking to jump on that foam roller a little bit, you know, put the, put the lacrosse ball in the scap mm-hmm. and try to release some things. And again, that's where I rely on Jay, Lisa and, um, and the athletic medicine staff and John. How, uh, like in a normal like let's take a normal or as as best you can a normal student athlete and kind of like picture what a student athlete would look like. How much time? Because I think anybody that plays a sport and you can attest to this, that's a full time job. I mean, it's not like you show up like it's not like high school. You show up practice at the end of the day and go. You know, you're you're a little bit more involved in traveling and traveling and overnights and stuff. How much time do they have per day to to be in the weight room or do practice or do recovery? Like, what do you think an athlete has? Re- realistically time-wise and how much do you think they actually probably commit to it each day on top of the workload and everything else or school, I mean school like the actual school part right and, and the easy answer is it depends Galen yep. <laughs> but the the scale of are you know are you uh psychology sociology criminal justice major you know are you a nursing major mm-hmm. are you in the sciences where you have labs mm-hmm. and uh so that's the challenge is trying to uh, know your athletes well enough where, you know, are they in a regular major with 15 credits where their master's is probably going to be a little more hectic coming off of the the human, I guess would be the human sciences into, uh, into nursing where they might be called in super early in the morning. They don't get to lift in the morning, but they have to have women's lacrosse practice at 7 p.m. at night. So when are they going to fit the lift in? Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that, you know, rounds out. Like, uh, would some of them like how how what's the time frame that the gym's open till morning to night? 
like six to 10 or is it? Well, that's the thing is f- for my role as we evolve as a strength and conditioning program, um, that, that's where I'm available in the morning because I have track and field practice in the afternoon mm-hmm. with those class yeah. conflicts and challenges. Yep. So that's how I'm working it right now until we have the new room open. Um, we'll evolve, you know, we'll evolve from there and be able to service the student athletes better. So when you have, um, like how long is your typical track and field practice and how often? Yeah, sure. It could be, it could be 45 minutes. It could be 90 minutes. And that's pretty much Monday through what? Friday, Saturday. Yeah. Monday through Friday. And then Saturdays we're typically on the road for, for competition starting in uh, December. And and when you get all, all the athletes, can they all go to the same 60 minute practice, 90 minute practice, or like you said, with class schedules, like we're missing the nursing students and criminal justice students on Tuesdays and Thursdays or something. Yeah. I mean, that's the the question on the table right now is we're always trying to find that sweet spot in time mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, have everyone the best we can. Uh, it, it does help with, you know, having a larger team and a smaller staff to actually have, you know, sometimes broken hour periods where, you know, I can have the high jumpers or the, you know, the throwers are, you know, up in the circle, um, versus the javelin throwers who need the, you know, field space. So we have to definitely have to be more chameleon with how we operate in, it, in some cases. And do you get, I mean, have you ever had to have like split practices where you have like two different practices a day just to get everybody in? Does that oh, happen often or is that often? It does. Okay. It does, yes. I mean, two to three throughout the afternoon. Uh, you know, so, so the, the, as I mentioned, the lab folks, yep. when, when the lab folks release late, they're typically the last that I service by the end of the, you know, late afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and do you guys practice primarily behind Memorial down in that area? Do you guys, where do you guys do most of the practicing? Well, I th- I, I, the di- it's interesting because the distance runners, they, they have a lot of different spaces to uh, take advantage of, yep. uh, whether it's behind even the field house and, yep. um, and Memorial, yep. but they'll also use the oval. Okay. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, the throwers are up in their circles right behind the field house that we have. Uh, and then I'll be mostly at PHS at our, you know, at our 400 meter track. Okay. So that's where you guys do most of the, the training too. Yes. They got a new, they got a new, uh, throwing circle too, right? Yeah. It's uh, fairly, it's fairly new. Like behind. Yeah. Um, so when you're trying to get, again, I guess the focus on track and field, like how many different events are a part of track and field? Primarily. Yeah. I mean, indoor, it could be around 22 and outdoor around 28. Uh, depends on what, you know, if you have the 10K or the steeplechase. Um, so when you guys go to a meet, say on a Saturday, and like you're coaching, like how many how many coaches are on the track and field staff right now? Yeah, it's three, three and a half. You know, we're looking to add a couple young ladies who just graduated and they're interested in the coaching field. Yep. So we may grow to, you know, upwards of having six six of us. And when you travel, you travel, you said like about 60 plus people. Yeah. Th- this athletes. year, yeah, this year we were, I mean, we probably averaged around 45. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then out of each, so say you have 45, do you have, is there someone in every single discipline or is there some events like we just have nobody for the javelin this year? Does that happen yep. or is it every year you try to fill the spots? Yeah. It, in our growth period, uh, there's probably a couple events that we, you know, leave out. Um, but that's more so because of recovery from week to week as well. Uh, so with, with javelin being one of the more strenuous of, of the events on the, you know, biomechanical systems mm-hmm. is, as we say, um, you know, they might not throw every week. 
um, even to an academic standpoint where, well, coach, you know, I have a, uh, you know, I have an engagement on Saturday where I have to be in Albany or even Colorado where someone was speaking, then, you know, that we have that pre-planned well ahead of time that they're not traveling on a specific Saturday. Um, so when you focus on like track and field, like, is there a certain events that you put more focus on or is there, do you kind of touch them all or is it like, Hey, I'm really, you know, maybe on the actual track part of it more than the field part of it? Yeah. I think with coach Slade, uh, when I was a first year assistant for him, you know, he made sure that I knew a little bit about everything. So I had to pick up a book on the hammer, uh, and learn how to coach the hammer throw. And even to the point of the 10 K where, you know, how do we treat the 10 K folks differently from an 800 meter runner? Um, so he made sure that I was well-versed before he sent me on to, you know, my first head coaching job, uh, to be able to say, Hey, you'll have an assistant that's able to focus on the sprints. Well, you're the head coach, coach something else. So whoever's available and is a good candidate, bring them in to help you build a program or coach, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to a successful model. And then you can make sure that, um, you can ladybug off into the other, you know, other, uh, event groups. Is is there, I mean, is there, I guess, uh, like which discipline do you kind of gravitate towards? This your favorites? Yeah, pr- probably the sprints because the sprints is relatable to all of the um, jumps, hurdles, and multi-event groups as well. Okay, and, and that's how I sort of create a team philosophy in the fall because we don't compete till December. Mm-hmm. We work on sprinting uh, in all of its different formats before we branch out specifically into their, you know, their jump group or hurdling and, and even multi-event groups. And, and how long does the indoor, indoor season last? And then when does it go outdoor? Yeah. Indoor, uh, starts in October with practice. We mm-hmm. compete December, take the natural winter break, and then we'll come back a little bit early, much like men's ice hockey and women's ice hockey. Mm-hmm. And we'll train for a couple of weeks without classes, compete a couple of times, and then we go right into, well, up until a few weeks ago where we had Janelle Barber at the uh, NCAA championships. So so the, the whole season's pretty, like, almost all year, let's say all year round, but then you start going to, like, the recruiting phase and stuff like that? Yeah, it's on, it's ongoing. Is that yours? That is, that is not my phone. Can you hear that? Yeah, 15 feet deep. Yeah, I don't know what that is. That's funny. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Sorry, folks. Disturbance. <laughs> I, was, I was like, here, I'm like, some, some, you know, when you have like those uh, old school walkie talkies and someone gets on the same channel as you, I feel like I'm like, I got like a trucker going down 87, like giving us like the updates. But uh, right. I was like, what, what is going on right now? Um, no, it's all good. Um, so, um, okay, back to where we were. So the, so the track and field. So you said the sprinting aspect, the, you know, and, and ties in. Um, like when you gravitate at like the push part of like, the Olympic part of it too. And then the track and field, like very similar mechanics. I'm assuming like when you start out, either the push or coming out of the blocks, same kind of like, you know, burst of speed at a quick, at a quick rate, very like, you know, straight line, linear kind of motion. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, acceleration is such a huge piece, um, in the conversation because when, you know, you're watching a wide receiver or, you know, uh, women's soccer player streak up the sideline, to make a cross of the ball. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're accelerating hundreds of times in our previous sport, um, whether you're a track and field athlete or not. And so it's very translatable. The challenge is 
getting locked into that sled. So whether you're skeleton and you're standing over the pan or you're behind what we call the bus. Mm-hmm. Which is the bobsled? Yes. Okay. So you're, you're locked in more with minimal or zero arm swing. So how did you get into the uh, bobsled and skeleton? Yeah, so first, oh gosh, I think it was had to be 98, and I'm sitting in Memorial 217 doing some recruiting, and uh, my, my head coach, Scott, Scott, says, there's a woman named Julie uh, Walker from Westport. She's coming up to talk to you about skeleton. And I said, what? I said, Is that like bobsled? He said, I think so. I said, all right, well, I'm, I'm interested. If it's another sport I didn't know about, let's, let's go. So sure enough, Julie comes up to the office the next day and, uh, she sat down and said, Hey, I'm the, I'm the queen of skeleton. I'm the greatest slider in the world right now. And I just can't push the sled. Was it Julie Walker? Yeah. Julie Walker. Yeah. Spelled like sleigh to Julie Walker. And Oh geez. Okay. Yeah. Come to find out she is an orchard park native. So. I said, all right, well, you're a Western New Yorker, you know, you have to, you have to be pretty cool character, you know, and plus we're both transplanted to the North country, which is even more cool. But anyhow, so I said, well, this is cool. Uh, I think, you know, I think we can help you do me a favor, go home, bring your sled, meet with me tomorrow at the field house ice rink, because I want to push it. I want to push your sled. So she did it. You know, I, I was able to contact Brad Graves and say, Brad, I got a crazy one for you. I got a crazy question. Can I borrow the ice for 10 minutes tomorrow at, you know, whatever it was, noon? And right in the field house ice? Yes, yes. So there it was. She brought the, you know, the skeleton sled in and two runners on the bottom. And, you know, it was like sliding in the backyard, really. And I was, I was sold and hooked and she was a cool customer. And uh, I gave her some training to do. We checked up by summertime and she was already taking tenths off of her five second push time and it was great so when you so yeah when you look at someone like that that's going on the ice and i remember did you ever work with lolo jones no she in passing bobsled was a little less for me just because okay. of track and field and you know i try to keep my because she was obviously olympic level uh hurdler right at right. the time so uh and i remember she's transitioned over and i've seen some people transition over in this you know to the sport so when you give like did you have any background in, in winter sports at that point not at all so this is purely strength and conditioning track and field i mean i should be able to learn how to pop out of the blocks like they do in you know a 200 or something so like what do you give someone like that this where's the similarities between the two movements of like what you focus on you know in a track and field sport and then also on an ice sport. Yeah. At the time when I, when she taught me how to push with the given technique, um, at at the time, which we can go into in a second, Yeah, you really are locked in. I mean, you're standing over top of the sled. If you can, if you could picture a field hockey player with stick in hand Mm -hmm. and sprinting down the turf, it's a different way to sprint versus having free and open arm swing. Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, all right, who else does that? Well, ice hockey does that. Lacrosse does that. We're just kind of bent over, bent over, leaned into a sled. All right. So it's still sprinting from the ground up foot, knee, hip. So what's the torso doing? So it's similar to this right here. 
That's absolutely the correct. So they're basically running kind of low, their arms. So everybody's looking mm-hmm. at this. Imagine someone coming out of the blocks, like when you take a start off in track and field, and their hand is down holding the sled, but almost looks like uh, like parallettes or something. You're like you're holding your hand down on it, and you're kind of running it along. And this one looks like wheels, right? So this is outside at some point, I'm assuming? That is, yes. That is an outdoor push facility, and uh, that is the evolution of the single arm push versus the two arm push that we had done up until eh, probably the, the well it was well before the vancouver games that the so this is now more popularized the one arm yeah everyone pushes with a one arm yeah hold and, and i'm i'm guessing that's a uh more superior way to do it now it's kind of like just over time you developed and just like this is actually a better way to do it it is it's more efficient okay for sure and that so that's only been around for 10 15 years yeah, well pro- probably 15 years yeah probably closer to 15 okay and, and who can who popularized the one arm? Like what? Who came up with that idea? To I do believe one? it was a Canadian, and I, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, sorry, skeleton fans, Duff Gibson, uh, and they, up in Calgary, had uh, come up with this idea. So but, that's a full skeleton. Um, what, what do you call them? A board? Like what? what it's, a, it's a sled. A sled. They call it sled. Yep. So when you go down the sled, like this is, it it looks like pretty much a. Like one of those skim boards you see, like in the water on on uh, that's on exact, tracks, right? Exactly. I mean, on sleds. Exactly. I mean, this is. I'm just kind of looking at it. They're they're very. How high off the ground are they? Two, three inches. Yeah, that's all. Yep. And um, how? I guess my other thing is how long are they, are they typically like? Yeah. So Galen, if like, I can put, you rest yeah. your thighs on them? If I put you on a sled right now, mm-hmm. it would be your shoulders touching. Yep. So your neck and head would be hanging off. Yep. And then you would feel the bottom of the board be probably quad, like thigh level. So I'm like 5'7", so there's got to be a lot of core strength just to keep your head up and your legs up the whole time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's relaxed. I mean, so you're okay. you're in a complete prone position, and yep. then you're slightly hyperextended at the neck. So you're, you're if you're sitting with good posture in your chair, yep. look up at the ceiling with your eyes. Yeah. Yes, you are improving. Yeah. So, but if you go up, like you still have to have the neck muscles. Like I said, it's a little bit of an exterior or an extension yes. movement. Yes. Yeah. And then, so when you go down, like do most, because I'm five foot seven, so I'm not that big of a guy. If you have someone that, cause I've seen some of these people are pretty big people, right? That do this. So like they're long, like, are you six foot? Yes. So like someone like you, like, are you on the same size sled as I would be? Or do yeah. sleds vary? Yeah, so uh, the rules have changed. Okay. And so it would match if you were a larger individual, uh, you know, you were 6'1", 185, you had a lighter sled, and then vice versa, you know, 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, I'd have a heavier sled. 140, 150 pounds, you'd have a heavier sled. Uh, okay. And the rules change every year, so uh, I won't go on record as... <laughs> <laughs> saying what the, the rules are. I, I always try to maintain that I'm the push coach, maybe not so much the, the driving coach nor the equipment coordinator on that, but um, I'm, I'm more so asking the athletes where their position is and where they feel comfortable in and around the sled, whether it is sprinting or when they are sliding at the time. Uh, and some of them I have to back off and say, look, you know, deltoids traps, you know, we're getting a little bit, large in the shoulder girdle so we need to back off so we have the aerodynamic ability like just on, on training aspects right right like musculature to yes, t- t- tone yes. it down or lean yeah. out yeah. um so when you see like these people going off and we're just kind of going through some images here like this one person i saw hands are like completely off the sled is that normal 
Yeah, I mean, that's... Like, because obviously you're pushing with your right arm, but then you have to take your right arm and go out wider, move your left arm in. Right. So there's obviously a technique there. Right, right. And uh, and it's not standard to push from that left side, as you saw in that pictorial there. You may choose to push from the right side of the sled. Is there is there... Like I look at most people right-handed in life. So like would most people, like I would think I would want to run on the left with my right hand doing most of the pushing. And I just feel, I feel like I'd be more coordinated to jump on to the right versus try to go the other way. Is that, do you find that that's what people do or is there? We would establish that prior to you pushing the sled, which I might have you do soon. So I would try it. So let's get ready. I, I've, <laughs> I was going to say you got one on, on, on the field house. We'll go try the, uh, <laughs> I actually have been to, um, where they do the skeleton, the takeoff, probably where you work mo- or do most of it, where it just kind of goes down into the cushions. I did it on a school trip when I was little, I was probably like 10, 11, 12, um, and we weren't running and jumping on it. It was, you know, we, we would lay on it. I think we were doing more like the luge style. So we'd lay on our back and someone would go and kind of push us down. And we got the feeling of just kind of, it was basically a sl- like going down a uh, tube, going down the hill. Um, it was pretty cool though. Like, and then we saw some people there. I, I don't follow it enough. I know some names just having watched the Olympics, but, um, it was a cool little, you know, arena and, you know, they had a lot going on and I feel like there's some athletes kind of mingling around. Um, do you work with luge too? No, just no, skeleton. I don't. Yeah, I focus on skeleton. Is it totally different? It is because luge, you, you lay on, you press through your hands and go. So it's not really the takeoff and jump on, right? Correct. Okay. Um, so I want to just bring this up and kind of have you walk through. Sure. So we're just watching a video. Um, skeleton pushing. Well, that didn't help. Yeah, thanks to your uh, institution for sending a bus down to the Olympic Training Center to check out the sport. It was, it was very cool. Appreciate that. Yeah, we had a lot. Um, so men's and women's heat, skeleton sport push. I'm, sh- I'm assuming yep. this would be okay. Yep, that looks like one of the Park brothers right there. Sure is. Oh, this okay. So we're actually right at Whiteface. So I have yep, that's I push it. some sound on here. Oh, I guess we got some inspirational music there. So maybe that's... Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, the Park so, brothers are actually, they're coincidentally from Utah. Uh, are those the twins you're talking about? Yes. Yes, so they're development sliders, and um, so this is yeah. where you work right here, or is this the top yeah, of the actual? Yeah, that's the top. Lush? That's the top of Mount Van Hovenberg at the sliding center, uh, absolutely. And uh, you know, I don't think there's enough footage to show us where the ice house is located, which I'll be in, a, in ne- by next week, I think. But this is do you work, do any work right here too? Yes. Um, yeah. So how this is right in uh, Van Hovenberg? Right. That's that's near the. Uh, Near the top of the mountain. So what's the what's the uh, skeleton? Um, let me see what else we got here. So when you see, like how long? I guess this whole part right here, because someone actually taking off, like from start to finish. I guess um, how how does it work with? Like, is there a starting line they have to start behind? Because I know the time starts when you go past the red, right? Correct. And so that block uh, you, is your. It's actually uh, depends on the block, but it's it's a two. It's like a two by four two by six block and you have to have contact with it right so when you take off so again if people don't see this is basically track and field you take out of the block it's just you're guiding a sled down and then you hop onto it so when at what point do you have to actually physically get on the sled is there like a rule on that no you could sprint as far as you wish but it's i was gonna say you got down to science where you kind of know where to jump on yes um so when you start off is the starting gate to the red line um typically always the same consistent distance or is that can that vary by track it is it's it is uh around the world the same distance however the pitch or slope of the track it differs so you could have a long flat outrun yep 
into the descend, or it could descend quickly. So they could be running downhill before they hit the red, like the starting line. Like in, in theory, it, that could be even more downhill. Yeah, two or two or three of the world tracks are such, you know, at a, at a pitch. Wow. Okay. Is that yeah. change technique at all? Uh, it does. It, it changes preparation more. Okay. So so you know, I'll I'll make sure that any athletes that are on my programming that they're ready for that. Okay. Uh, maybe even two weeks prior. So, um, like when, when you're doing like the Olympic training center, so when you're doing that down in Lake Placid, like what, is that a pretty flat takeoff or is that, is that like replicate what you would see, you know, at Matt Van, Mount Van Hovensburg? Like, are they similar in start? Like as almost like a replica or if you went to like, you know, maybe somewhere over in Europe, they're just completely different kind of tracks. Sure. Well, we have three, uh, three areas where we can start from. So we can have a long flat run out. Yep. And we can also move the block up so that it's a quicker slope to sprint off from. So, so if you, um, let me see. So what, what's the actual, what, what's it called? The skeleton what, ice house. Yeah. See, see if we can find some, let me see if I can find a video of the ice house. Yeah. I'm going to say, we're just going to get a bunch of like, old. yeah, <laughs> there's the luge. Yeah. The luge ice luge, um, right here. Training at the ice house. I think that would be luge. I mean, I don't, this isn't Lake Placid though, right? Looks like Calgary. Let me see. So, um, is it called Lake Placid bobsled skeleton? I mean, have you ever gone down one of the tracks yourself? I've taken 50 runs, uh, from Lake Placid when it was brand new to, uh, Park City. And I've been down Calgary a couple times. How was that? So, like, how that goes pretty fast? Yeah, Park City's pretty quick. It's more of a straight run. So, I think that evening, um, I think I had hit 72 miles per hour. Really? Yeah. I Were think, you skeleton on your stomach? Yeah, bell, belly down, head first. Yep. A couple inches off the ice. So, like, the normal person's not doing that, right? Like, you have some technique and know how to do it? Well, what, or, you, what you would do is in the development stages. I mean, I, I don't want to us. I don't want to like, what's it called? Not give you enough credit, but I was not expecting you to say like, I've gone down 70 miles per hour down. I thought you were going to be like, I, yeah. I went down like sledded down it kind of thing. Yeah. So you went, you, you did it. Well, you the world, the world class folk, like our world cup team. I mean, they're, they're well over 80 miles per hour on that, on the park city track. Um, so, and you know, they're well equipped and everything. So, but what we would do with you, Galen, is we would start you and any development athlete, um, from a lower start. So it's, as we say, gotcha. it's like sense. riding downhill on a bike. So you're doing more 30, 40 miles per hour and you get off of the sled and, and you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, why was that dangerous? I mean, it's just a fun, well, it's probably like going skiing at, like the, at the summit of white face versus starting at mid mid station. I, I would, the, ag- I would agree with that yeah. because I've done that too. Not, not much, but I know what you mean by that. Yeah. And so, and I would contend that that's more dangerous than, than the skeleton bobsled track. So most, most of the speed and the pitch is up near the top. No. So it'd be down towards the bottom. It varies from track to oh, it track. It does. Okay. Yeah. I, if like I, I, I've seen it, but again, as like a, a non-educated, like I watch it during the Olympics kind of thing. Like I watch it once every four years and like, I'm familiar with what it is, but like you said, all the nuances and like for you, you're looking at small details that I'm never going to notice. And I'm just like, are there time ahead of the other guy's time, you know, and they go down and that's pretty much all I'm looking at. Right. Where you're, 
you know, I, I get it like the, you know, the height of going up around the corner or the speed or the technique or how they're, you know, there's just so much to it that you, the naked eye or untrained eye can't see. Oh, and I rely on my coaching staff too. Okay. So <laughs> to coach that aspect, because that's definitely not my, uh, so when, and how many, like for someone who's in skeleton, so you do the push, like how many coaches do they have from start to finish? I mean, just, uh, I, just on the technique aspect. Yeah. Of, and a, and a on world, ice. on a world cup, uh, world cup day, we could have, you know, three or four coaches. Now, now that the videography is much better and we've evolved with cameras in each corner, mm-hmm. uh, our, our head coach, uh, Matt Antoine, uh, who was bronze medalist at Sochi, he, um, he relies on the video screen at the start, which is cool for me because mm-hmm. after they push and they, they load the sled, you know, I'm taking notes and getting ready for the next slider to push. Uh, so having him up there, I'll get some idea of what he's looking at on the video screen, how they're entering a curve, how they're in the curve, doing whichever driving they need to do, whatever driving, and how they exit the curve as well. So that's all stuff that I didn't really go over as a slider because I was coaching and I would just take the development club hour and just slide a couple times just to get the experience. Well, first off, Brad, I'm watching this person go down the skeleton experience. So you were doing, this was you going down basically. Yes. That didn't freak you out? Like, no. So this was something that was no. like, and like how many times you said 50 times, like, did you start at the bottom and work your way to the top? Not for long. I didn't stay on the bottom for very long. Wow. Like, I just feel like that looks super intimidating. Just going down head first. Like the fact that I just see the people like wipe out and crash that like, and I wouldn't trust myself to like go, or do you find that it's, what is it called? Uh, centripetal force where it just right. kind of shoots you down and you just kind of along for the ride yeah the, the coaches the driving coaches do a great job of evaluating whether the person should actually go home mm-hmm. for forever okay <laughs> or uh, maybe they can move up to the next start level and they'll be fine or i mean they could tell right away this person has it you know that this this athlete is ready for the top almost uh now you know so so this right here this is where the the skating is that's it or the sled is is. this is the this is the new um yep so it's called the olympic sports complex maybe that's why i had to refer to it as okay so this is where i would have gone to go for that little track this is this is actually the the former lodge and as you see out the window there there's construction and they're preparing for the new mountain pass lodge in mount van hoverberg and that's the lose, right? But or that's that, bobsled right there. That is the heart. So yeah, this is the actual bobsled skeleton and luge track. So they all use the same track. Right. Okay. Just different starts. So who starts higher up? Uh, bobsled and skeleton start from one. And then luge has their own little indent a little bit lower where they start from. And they like, basically kind of merge, merge onto the per- main track. Yes. Gotcha. Perfect. Okay. So you're never actually driving over the starting gate of someone or like the starting location. Right. Um, now, how come Luge starts further down? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think they're, I think they might build speed uh, a little f- sooner that way because their drop happens earlier. Okay. Whereas Bob's and Skeleton, we set up with the load, get in our sleds, and then take a little while to is, settle in. So. Is it based on like just the, I want to say biomechanics, but like the like the aerodynamics or ergonomics, like of just like how it's structured and where the weight is and stuff is where they kind of position. 
So a lot of it yes. based on that because yes. the bobsled is obviously carrying more weight, especially if you have two or four people on yes. it. Yes. Um, so when you do pushing with bobsled, do, I mean, like uh, skeleton, no skeleton, you don't have two person skeleton, right? You have two person luge, but Correct. only one skeleton. Correct. So when you go from a single and you've worked all the way up with the, the four sleds or the four, or like the four, uh, you know, four person sled, like how's the push different on that when you're trying to communicate with... Like, are you just more and more the physical aspect, or are you still all the timing of everybody getting in the, in the, uh, I guess, the sled at the same time or in the order? You see them kind of all, like, gracefully kind of slide in, really. Yeah, there's plenty of, uh, how do we say, uh, in the world of dance, there's choreography, and they're practicing that all the time. And I, I get to see that because when I'm finished with my skeleton day, bobsled is always after us Okay. on the start ramp. So you'll see them constantly have their cues from takeoff alone. And then once, once they know they're on rhythm to jump in the brake, you know, the brake person and the driver, yep. they have it all planned out. Is the brake and the driver the same guy or different? Isn't the brake in the back? Well, see with the advent of the monobob for women, you do it all because you're the solo pilot. Well, that's and, the sole, yes, and that's the one person yes. now. Yes. yes. And that's new, right? Newer. It's fairly new. Yes. Um, so when you deal with, is there a preference on who you deal with regarding, like, I really like the skeleton takeoff or I really like the, you know, the four person bobsled takeoff. Well, since 1998, <laughs> I've it stuck did. with skeleton for the longest and, uh, not, not until recently did I take on, uh, some of the women's bobsledders who, you know, contracted with me. So I think once monobob was announced Olympic, you know, they looked to me to help them you know, with their start. So I was happy to help them. And some of them f were from different countries as well. So that was, that was exciting. So how long is the actual course? Like right here, like how long is that whole yeah, trail? It's, a, going it's, a, it's about a mile. Wow. What, what yeah. do they, what do they cover that? And yeah, a little the, over a minute, minute the and a half? you know, the track records, um, escape me because they're constantly, I mean, we're still a little bit in our infancy. So, mm -hmm. so the track records are, you know, in the low fifties, 50 seconds. Yeah. It's amazing. So who gets Something. down the fastest out of the, like, I'll throw Luge in there too. So Luge, Skeleton, and the different bob bobsledders, like, who's typically can get down the fastest? Yeah, the, the bias would be Skeleton is the fastest. The and fastest? then if you asked a bobsledder, they would say they're the fastest. And then on But and based on. on based on, like, actual time, though, have they have they measured, like, who physically gets down the fastest? Yeah, I want to say. Obviously, oh, Luge I, might be a little bit different because of the start. Start's different, yeah. But I think the 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 kilometers per hour captured, I'd have to look that one up for you. Like, do you work with this guy, Chris Master? No, I know of him, though. The, the good thing about the dining hall is you see everybody So in the OTC. So sometimes they know me and I don't know them because they always have their helmets on. But I was going to say, cause he, he's a pretty well-known guy, but he's what, bobsled? Yes. So what, what, what athletes have you, have you worked a lot with at the Olympic level? Because you've been to a handful of Olympics, right? Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate enough to coach uh, for... I think all of the past Olympics, with the exception of the Italy games, was it Turin? Um, yep, yep, Turin, yep. And so it started with once I had Julie Walker. Uh, you know, they brought me in for a year, and I worked with J Jimmy Shea. Oh uh, yeah, and and that group, and then um, as I as I moved on and up and grew a little bit more and more with the sport, uh, some of the New Yorkers that we had we've had are Annie O'Shea. Who was a, a perennial World Cupper? She she had a gold and a silver in the World Cup, uh, and then John Daly, 
Smithtown, New York from Long Island. Oh, yeah. You know, he, he was our Olympian and competed for us at Plattsburgh State um, at the same time. So he's All-American in decathlon and, uh, you know, four-time Olympian. So. so he was both. So he was track and field. Like, so yes. he, he was track and field and then switched over? Studied here. Okay. Yep. Trained um, mostly in the winter time, and then we would have him for outdoor. So he was just, I mean, a good all-around athlete. What, yeah. Yeah. What, he, yes. So was, um, you said he was skeleton? Yes. So when he was in, was he part of the skeleton when he was in college too? Yes. So what we would do is we would figure out what, you know, what tour he would be on, mm-hmm. uh, based on his qualification. And in particular one year, you know, he was able to come out, um, and compete in a meet to qualify for championships just in time to make, you know, the championship meet. So he only competed twice indoor, but still was on, I can't recall which tour he was on beside that. If he was on the America's cup tour and was able to work that out. And then once the season was over in March, he came to outdoor track and field and be, you know, short story is he became all American decathlon. That's wild. So as I say, cause wasn't, his dad or grandfather was big into it too, right? Sport at one point. And you know, that was Jack. That was the, the Shays. That's the Shays. Okay. Yes. I remember there was, there the was a couple, family. Yes. It's, and he, they were at skeleton too. No. Uh, let's see. You're, I always get them wow. mixed up with like the, you're names putting are. me on the spot. Yeah. Jack, uh, Jack was the f- speed skater and Jim senior was, Oh man, I see him all the time. He was the biathlete, I believe. So this right here is John. So this is the guy that went to Plattsburgh State. Yes, that's wild. So that that like start right there, like what what do you like when you look at this technique? Like what jumps out to you when you're watching this this happen? So obviously he's got the right arm down. He's he's pushing, but right like mechanical wise, is this a pretty? Yeah, John's very efficient. And uh, at this point in time and during this video, I mean his training age is now. Hmm, I'll cheat and look at the screen a little bit. He's he's probably about eight years in, so he's had several push attempts. Mm-hmm. So for him, it would just be fine-tuning little things. And, and so when he made the Korean games, uh, in between all four of his runs, I only gave him one cue to think about. He always had, because he, he was a kind of an, he's the kind of athlete that would go for it, so to speak. He'd, he'd only need one thought off the block and, he would just get after it, so to speak. Was that Pyeongchang? Yeah. That was the Olympics? That was, right. So were you over I, there in Korea at the time? Yes. So when you, like, when these guys are going to compete, are you up right at the starting area with these guys? Yeah. So I try to find a spot right close by. And, yeah. You know, I get my video and then I can, you know, review it and catch, you know, especially him because at the time he was my, you know, contracted athlete. So how many athletes did you work with at the time? Or Ooh. can you work with at a time at Olympics? Well, yeah, as many as you have. Uh, see, at the time, I was more of a contract guy. I was unofficially recognized by the Federation. Now I'm more officially recognized by the Federation, mostly as a development coach, and then I still have some people on contract. Uh, in that, you know, for example, I have a World Cupper right now uh, on contract. So, um, so yeah, so I, I was there for the games, and, you know, I had access to him, and, we made adjustments from run to run and went went from there. So when he when he's doing, yeah, that's him right there. Yeah, that's John. So yeah. when John, so when he's starting out, I guess if you go all the way back, like 
when they're so he he jumps on, and you sometimes see watch his feet like you kind of you see how his feet are kind of like out a little bit. Is that more just he's trying to get situated, or is that yeah? Like so a, if I may, the uh, the actual sprint start um, contains a start groove. It's hard to see in in any video that you're watching. Just like a little trench. Right, there's two yep. trenches, and, and the two trenches serve bobsled perfectly for their four runners um, or their left and right runner. Mm-hmm. And so the skeleton sled is narrower, so they're only allowed to have their runner in one of the grooves. So you could pick your right runner and put it in either groove or vice versa, left runner, left or right groove. It's up to you, but it all matters as to how you want to enter into the first curve. So, okay, yep. so once that groove ends, the cut groove, yep. you are going to be pushed out or straight. Depends on what happened from the last person that went. So you have to be ready for that. So to answer your question, when you saw his feet move, that was his steering mechanism. Okay, so that's not like a sloppy technique. That's just more of like he's got to be able to get it yeah, his, at least on the right like line. Yes, his body felt right so he probably needed to get left his left gotcha and then get into that curve appropriately so he could start the process which is accelerating out of every curve the best he can i try to think about it as um when you exit 87 with your car next time you do that feel your body move in that curve if you're doing 30 miles per hour or however you enter the curve how do you correct for that so you don't fall out the window and I say that lean away. Yes, yeah. So, so he's trying to check it down so that he doesn't go too high as well. So, what, what's like a cue that you would give him at the Olympic? I mean, you don't have to give the specific one, but if he was doing something at the Olympics, like what would a cue look like that you might give him? Yeah, it's it's biomechanical. So he's doing something with the lower body that he needs to dial in, mm-hmm. and he'll be able to he'll be able to correct that as he warms up again. So what I'll do is I'll stand. Um, I'll stand at the starting area while they'll do a track and field style warm up in all the countries do it. Um, and so I'll watch and I'll notice if something's not right, I'll either refer them to the trainer or I'll cue them to say, Hey, make sure you do do this or make sure you stay down the line or whatever. Like, could that be like lean down more? That could be like maybe press more to, I mean, I'm just like throwing yeah. random things out, but like put more weight here or kind of like yeah. maybe drive yeah. more if they're outside yeah. leg or something. Yeah. And if they ask me, what do you mean by that? I'll just, you know, change the way I say it. Yeah. Uh, and then they'll feel, you know, better going into run number two, or maybe it's even before run number one that they don't look sharp. So I'll say, well, do more of this or do mm-hmm. less of that, or you feel good. Yes. Okay. Then be done. How, how much of it, um, like from a, like a mental standpoint when they're up there and they're like on the blocks and it's obviously like, like I'm assuming they can get in their own mind a little bit because it's really just them in the track. It's like it's not a reactionary, as much of a reactionary sport as like say basketball. You're reacting to where the ball's going, not necessarily. Nothing's changing. Like they see the track, they have, they can pretty much manipulate every aspect of this race for the most part. Um, there's not a lot of moving variables. What what part of you know have you experienced where it's kind of like just let them get in the zone and do their thing? At what stage do you know when to step up and speak up as a coach or when you? Like you said, maybe they could use a cue, but mentally they seem like in a good spot and maybe even giving a cue will give them a little bit of self-doubt where maybe it's just like, just, you know, I, how, how do you weigh that a little bit too? kind of reading the athlete? Yeah. That's the beauty of the summertime is I get to know them. So we'll rehearse that. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
more oftentimes than not, I'm, I back off, especially at championship time. Uh, so whatever space they need, I give that to them because even, even to a point where if an athlete says, when I come off the truck, because the truck takes, you know, a group of the sliders back up to the top for run number two, mm-hmm. I, again, it's all in a movement screen too, is I see them take their sled off the truck and dock it and I'll know what the posture is. Are they upset about their run? Mm-hmm. Are they dissatisfied? Are they ready to crush the second one? I can get a sense f- for that. Um, so I know to stay away from them. Maybe they have to make a, uh, a sled adjustment anyway. So that's a total another, another department that's not in my gym bag. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I can tell, I, I wait till they decompress a little bit cause they'll have at least 45 minutes before they have to push again. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So they have some time to rewarm up even. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll just kind of hover around. It's, it's kind of a tight space. It's intimate setting anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and a few of them will be the come to type of athlete. Uh, whereas a lot of them, I know I need to go to them. I need to go to their spot and say, Hey, what, you know, what do you think? Or some of them like it straight up as a hard and fast cue that, Hey, fix this, you know, make sure on your next run you do this. Oh yeah. Okay. Coach, you know, and, and, and like I said, on the second run before the second run, I will be on deck for the warm up. I'll pay attention to what, you know, to what they're, what they're doing. Um, so when you go, I mean, do they come search you out at times or is it a lot of it like where, depending on where they are, like you make a point to go over or do you find like, I mean, do they drive the, the kind of the communication aspect? Or? Abs- absolutely, because okay. I, I always think about. Uh, I'm not a huge NASCAR fan, mm-hmm. but it's it's interesting to see how they operate, man, you know, managerially to, you know, who's the leader there. It's who's behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. So you know, if if they think they need more air pressure in their tire, or they need a new set of tires, or they need gas, they're going to come in. Uh, so I very much stay back and let them be their sole proprietor because I don't have to deal with 20 curves at 75 miles per hour. Yeah. You know, I, I want them to decompress. And you got a very narrow window of the race. Yeah. I have five or, you know, five or so seconds of, of, uh, push time. So what, uh, how much of like, a whether bobsled or skeleton, how much of the race can be won or lost on the push? Like, I mean, that could make or break it, right. If they're not dialed in. Yeah, you'll you'll see. It's pre, what's pretty cool about the sport is, and I I think about Tiger Woods at the Masters. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tiger Woods can, in his head, go over every green, all eighteen greens at, at the Masters, and tell you where the bumps and swells are. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what you'll get from a twelve or fifteen year slider. Is if they've aspired to the World Cup level, they'll know the track in Austria by the back of their hand. Um, whereas some tracks, maybe not because we just don't travel there like Beijing. It's, mm-hmm. it's a newer, newer facility. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's that to rely on. Um, and so I'm, I'm very careful with that because if I, they know their game, I definitely, I do as less, less as I can to help them. Do you like someone like you with the push, do you have to understand the entire track or are you, it's like, you don't really care about, I mean, you might just as a fan, but it's not necessarily like important to your work is like the push always the same for the most part. 
Yeah, I, I think I, I do care about curve one, two, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't think we do enough work preparing our body for that. Um, I, I'm working on that because we do get so myopic on, hey, let's push for five seconds and see if we can't take hundredths and tenths of second off your time. Um, but as we kind of mentioned before, the difference between uh, Park City, Utah, and Winterberg, Germany versus uh, Altenburg, uh, and, uh, Laplan, France, I think those are two steep runs. Mm-hmm. And then the other, the latter two are longer runouts. So that's more of what I'm interested in, but I'd still care about, you know, their, their slideability as a, as an athlete too. How, how far after they push to they hit the first curve? Typically? It's about 50, about 50 meters. From yeah. the time they actually enter or yeah, about, lay on the board or sled and then go down yeah, about a half a football field. Yeah. Okay, so they have a little bit of time to kind of correct before they dive into it. Yeah, they settle into their sled, get balanced, and you know, re- relax and, and just breathe. So when you're dealing with athletes at this level, I think they call it. I'm going to totally mess up the names. So I'll just kind of give the theory behind it. Like if you're a newer athlete, and let's say you're in the weight room, you are probably going to hit a personal record almost every time you go into the gym for a set period of time until it gets to the because you're just so new to it. They're like, you're like, hey, I lifted 50 pounds, then I maybe a back squat, and now I'm up to 100 in like a week, and then I'm up to 150, and like a week later from that, and then eventually you hit the point where like, say you're, let's just say back squatting, let's say 300 pounds to go from 300 to 305 could take you a year. You know, meaning I'm just like the adaptation early on, you have so much room for growth. And then eventually when you start to peak out, Mm. the ability to get better is minuscule. Like it'll take you way longer to get inches better. And I mean, you're dealing with athletes at that level. Like if I go in and I run five different runs, probably by the fifth run, I'd be like, oh, that was your best run. And I made a massive improvement. These guys are running hundreds of runs to make like a a hundredth of or a thousandth of a second improvement. Like when that comes down to, what you focus on because there's how do you get athletes at a high level? And this could even be in at the college level too, to like what's important, especially with such a technique sport to get to basically reinforce all these positions and techniques and strength and working at it. But you're talking like split seconds. Like how, how does that, like it's hard to even comprehend that, that like you're putting all this work in for very, very, very minor, like naked eye can't even tell that these are happening. But I mean, obviously you do and, you know, people in your space do, but like how, how does that go where you're trying to like really just squeeze out all the potential out of like this person? Yeah. I think the debrief of the practice. So last year in the summertime, you know, I was on ice quite a bit. Um, like, like, as I may have said before, I think on Monday I'll start, you know, ice is down and ready to go indoors. So we're ready to start okay. push training. And so the debrief I had, um, for the athletes, as a whole athlete group as a whole was, Hey, what if we, you know, what if we test this next year? And you have to think, you know, six months ahead of time before you can actually enact the, the thought process. And so, um, what was the commonality with all the athletes that I can put one finger on and say, Hey, let's improve that. Um, that that's what we're going to try to focus on this year. Um, last year it was more, uh, more of a holistic, I came in more with a holistic approach where, all right, let's just get a whole look at everyone's technique and then find the one thing per person. Okay. 
this year I've, I've changed my thought process and say, all right, how can we think of one thing for everyone? So that's what we're going to try to do this year. So, I mean, do you find that, I mean, like, what do you think makes a difference between those like milliseconds of, of difference between, cause I mean, when you look at most of these people that go down, I mean, they're, you know, from first place to like 10th place, you're talking a second, two seconds, maybe on a track that's a mile long. Like that's not a whole lot of difference at that level. Right. So when you're talking like one, the person that's getting the gold medal, they're, it looks like they're marginally better than the sixth place person. But when you're talking where the stakes are with time wise, I mean, they could be head and heels above the next person, even though it only reflects in a second. Yeah. I mean, the, that's the cool thing about the sport, I think, is there are so many clouds. So, so the one cloud of just trying to figure out from year to year basis, how the rules change and how that affects the sled, Mm -hmm. like the actual construction of the sled. Uh, I can't speak to that too much because it's a little bit out of my league. Yeah, but I, I understand generally the anatomy of of a sled and how it's built and how it fits a particular individual and what they like from this runner to that runner based on softer ice and super hard ice. So there there's that cloud. The other pieces that um, I can go into, like I would with Jay, um, the coach, and myself at Plattsburgh. Mm-hmm is we put the athlete in the middle still um, with athletic medicine, uh, Ben, and sports psychology, and other folks in that pit crew, that NASCAR pit crew, I mm-hmm. say. And we figure, we can figure things out per individual, you know, strengths and weaknesses. Hey, what did you think about last season? You know, what, what, what do you think you need to do better? Uh, and then go, and go from there. So it can be done from a more individual standpoint too. Um, so when you look at bobsled and skeleton, like, is there a peak age for most of these athletes? No, that you're finding not at all. I mean, I mean, at recently from, from the women's standpoint, I could speak to a little bit better though. If you look at the women's medalists at Beijing, I mean, they were North of 25. I mean, so they, there's three medalists right there that were, have been around the sport for a fair amount of time. And is, that's considered a pretty veteran age, 25 plus in skeleton? I would say yes. And when do most of them start? Like junior high, high school? Yeah, it depends on the federation around the, the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to have, you know, the 16-year-olds and 17, 18-year-olds get into it. It's just difficult because there's so much going on in our lives in the United States and with education in their current sport and, and so on. So... So what, what, um, I feel like, I feel like a lot of these sports are like recruiting sports. Like you go to an athlete and say like, Hey, have you ever thought about trying this sport? What kind of, I mean, is that true? That statement? For yeah, the most that's part? fair. I feel yeah. like most kids yeah. don't grow up and say, I want to be a skeleton athlete. Right. You know, I think right. it's one of those like different sports and, but what kind of athlete are you ultimately looking for? If you were to find like a skeleton, is it someone in track and field? Is it someone that is like a sprinter already or maybe football? Like. Yeah, I don't think there is an answer to that. I, I mean, f- from my uh, 27, 27 year view of, of the sport, uh, I mean, I think John Daly competed as a uh, as a BMX biker. You know, oh, wow. s- some folks come have come over from uh, speed skating or even uh, downhill skiing, and okay. so you could see those connections because you're moving at a generally high rate of speed. You have a course. 
So you have to navigate. Uh, whereas yes, the track field folks tend to have high success. Um, I think even one of the Germans was an equestrian oh, wow. person. That's... Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say some of those like adrenaline, but I say equestrian just seems like, I mean, that seems like a very kind of opposite of what this would be. Um, right. When, let me see a couple, I'm kind of going over some questions here. Okay. So where do you think that the, the sport of track and field. Um, so I kind of put down two things, like how has it evolved, the sport evolved, and how do you think it's evolving more? Because when you look at kind of going, you can pick either sport or all of them. Um, I don't know, how long has Skeleton been around? Since the 90s? Yeah, longer than that. I, I think oh, okay. f- uh, for in the 50s, it was more you know a male-dominated thing. Uh, and then you know in the, at the Salt Lake Games, that's when we were able to go men and women as Olympic. Okay. So that's 2002, right? Salt yeah, Lake. Yeah. Um, so when you look at sports like that, and obviously track and field is like the original sport, you mm-hmm. know, when you look at that, like how, how has the sport evolved since you've been involved in it for, you know, 27 years? And where do you think the sport is going on both fields, like the track and field aspect, and then even on, on ice? Yeah. I, th- I think twofold off the top of my head is, is the, the way we train, we're, you know, we're leaning on sports science, I think more and more mm-hmm. we, we did back then and we do now. Uh, and then also f- the other split on that is the technology piece. You know, as technology continues to evolve, you know, I think the performances happen too. Um, so I try to stick with the latter of, you know, sticking with sports science and relying on those who study more in depth, the, you know, the energy systems or, yeah. you know, how the nervous system is affected. And, um, you know, I think about it over the summertime and I try to u- use the evidence wisely to help propel people. So it's like a mixture of like biomechanics and physics, like just the way how things work and angles and pressure and, and even to a, tra- yes. And even to a training, uh, philosophical standpoint of how much volume or how little, how, how much less can we do to be this much faster? And then with the end result, you know, how do we, how do we get there? Because we have to go all the way to March or we have to go all the way till May you know, it depends on which group I have. Um, is there a tapering phase in any of the, in both of these sports? You you could call it that. And there's, you know, there's a couple models I do use. Uh, and that's, you know, that's been something that I've been changing over the, I guess I could say decades now. And um, it, it, it seems to, seems to be working. Uh, I try to, I try to pride myself on, uh, you know, having a, you know, having that dinner table mo- moment where much like my parents preparing the curriculum for their classrooms that I did, I'm doing the same thing. I'm just borrowing. I'm just borrowing all these ideas from people probably way smarter than me and saying, Hey, what if we did this for a taper as, as you put it? Um, how do we prepare them for this championship? Or if we have two championships or Janelle Barber making it to NCAAs, mm-hmm. how do I keep her going fast for three or four weeks? while final exams are happening and she's working and you know people are excited for her and you know so how do you manage all that what's uh at what level of the sport do you find that it comes down just purely based on like genetics versus like technique and 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 effort when you look at i'm going to take like usain bolt like obviously Mm. a massive outlier in the sport like how good was his like someone like kim obviously how good was his technique versus the fact that he was also 
very tall and lanky and I'm assuming the stride length played a massive you know difference in that and at what point were you like well if we had to fix find the perfect runner that would be the body type provided he had the same technique and and you know I guess ability level or you know wanting to do it kind of thing um do you think it ever taps out at like hey we can get an athlete so good but really if we had to pick the ideal athlete in whatever sport they kind of fit this body type and mold yeah, darn it! If he didn't start celebrating at the ninety-one meter mark in the you know the world yeah. record race, probably never would be broken. Yeah, yeah. What if what would he have run? So, so to answer answer your question, um, it is a model. So, so that we have these models of you know uh, a, a female great Carmelita Jetter, who was more I don't I'm close with this, but five feet five inches, and really a dominant hundred meter runner for the United States you know, back in the nineties. And mm-hmm. now you have Usain Bolt, who's, you know, was six, three or four, whatever, yeah. he, whatever he is. And, and so we say, well, yeah, that's the guy because he is the world record holder. Well, other people have run really, really, really fast too. So what are their models? What are they showing us with their angles and skill and technique that they bring to the table? And then also, since you brought up Bolt, what about his background? Mm-hmm. So what sports did he play yeah. in Jamaica growing up and how did that fuel his skill uh, along with the genetic you know, predisposition, whatever that means. And I rely on the scientists to tell me that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he probably ran, you know, Jamaica's hilly. So maybe hills are the answer too. Yeah. You know, he didn't have the technology perhaps with the greatest tracks on the planet mm-hmm. and he ran more on grass. Maybe that's the answer. Um, but so there were, I think there are a lot of factors that go into it. Who's a, who's some of your favorite track. So kind of go back and more the track and field side. Who's some of the, your favorite track and field people that you've been like that person is like, I like golf and there's no denying like the Tiger Woods swing of the early two thousands is probably the greatest swing in golf. Um, and you look at some players and you're like, like, you know, just this past weekend, like Rory McIlroy, like best driver in the game, and mm. one of the nicest. I think anybody on the on in golf would say that Rory's probably got the nicest swing on the PGA Tour. It's like, you know, so you kind of look at that. Who, who do you equate something like that to in track and field that you point to? And you're like that. Just they're, they're just head and heels above everybody else. Yeah, I think, tech- you know, I think generally speaking, th- those are great. Those are great uh, models, as I put before to to go to and mm-hmm. analyze the takeaway or the the follow through of the golf swing uh, but what i if if i'm asked by my athletes coach who should i follow who should i emulate i would say the heptathlete women and the decathlon men because they are struggling for victory times seven times ten so there's there's seven events obviously that the women have to um, move through and do it efficiently mm-hmm. and same same goes for the men so if, if you are to watch an open javelin thrower take 22 or 24 steps which is not an exaggeration from lane eight of the track up to their foul line it will boggle your mind as a beginning javelin thrower so don't look at the gold medalists w- women and men in the javelin Look at how the heptathlon decathlon athletes throw the javelin. If you want a good, a sound physical education model, going back to my roots, you know, to throw that thing efficiently and then find the higher model as you. 
is that because the heptathlons, I mean, they're, they're more well-rounded because they're doing more events. So their technique yeah. on any of them is just going to be slightly below someone that specializes in just throwing the javelin. I would say that's pretty fair. Yes. Cause I, like I, like I've, um, you know, I have a pretty big background or was more involved with like CrossFit at one point and CrossFit is more of a generalization versus saying a weightlifter. Like they're never going to lift as much of, of, of an Olympic weightlifter would, but that relative right. to a normal person, right. they'd be much higher. So I kind of always look at like, you know, the heptathlon, the decathlon, like just like the, these, these females are, are, are these women are amazing mm -hmm. athletes in every one of those. But if they were to take that same event and go race that against the ones that just specialize in that event, I'm assuming they wouldn't place that well. The I would say um, that's mostly accurate, but now that you have Just some outliers, hurdles hurdles is the first event of the women's heptathlon. Okay, so uh, some of those hurdle times are right up there with you know world class focused hurdlers. That's impressive. So, um, speak, I would agree. I was going to say speaking. I, I had a. I know you were involved with him, and I just saw this on his. Uh, his wall is a was it 25th anniversary of Verk winning the national championship. So and I had Chris on here. He was talking about, um, and I, I believe he mentioned, yeah, because you were part of that, right? You were coaching at the time. Yes, Plattsburgh. Yes. So he I mean, he mentioned you, and I mean he was talking about you know the stride length. I think he wanted to hit like 16 strides between hurdles, and you know just you know the landing. I mean everything is so, so technical. Like in his mind, he knew. Like he's run the race within the race and, you know, the here and Chris, obviously, I mean, just a great all around athlete, but, um, you know, and I, he showed it and just, I mean, Chris arguably like the technique though was like so dialed in at that point that like for him, he was probably running against other really good athletes that are the same or better than him, maybe skill wise. But if he had tech, his technique was so dialed in and obviously Chris is a competitor, mm -hmm. like he's just going to, you know, rise to the occasion, like going through someone like Chris who won the national championship, like when you're dealing with athletes like that and just trying to train them on on that, like, um, do you get someone like Chris and he's pretty raw and you got to teach him a lot? Do you get some where you're just like this person just gets it and they just click and can, you know, they can perform? Yeah, I mean, he was one of the folks who come had come from a multi-sport background, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and he never stopped moving in his upbringing either, uh, and so. You know, for, for him, he definitely had a fast learning curve to those rhythms and the techniques that go along with, in particular, 400 hurdling. And, and so once we got to the championship period, it was more so reminders like John Daly, just just one thing here or there. Um, and so we had him so peaked at the championship that day that and he was feeling so good that I want to say it was hurdle seven. He ran so fast that day, but he still stuttered on hurdle seven. So it still wasn't that perfect mm -hmm. sprint, uh, just yet. Um, and so you just had to keep him focused on the first five hurdles, you know, that, that day. And then whatever, after that, the athlete took over. Is that just because he kind of just gets in that groove and he's just, it's almost like a blur. Like well, he's just well, muscle memory. Again, we, I mean, we worked him pretty good that year and those are the, olden days where you know his his volume i wouldn't even come close to uh administering to the to the athletes i mean he did now he he did he i borrowed from a model that was quite high and and translated it so it worked for him mm -hmm. uh, i don't i definitely don't use that model like for example janelle barber uh this past period um you know she was definitely on a, a lower volume but her intensity was definitely there um 
so so he you know he was able to navigate the first five hurdles like we like we needed but by hurdle six he was still super fast and by seven i believe is the one where he chopped a little bit i mean he was flying i mean i can't remember the time that he hit for the hurdle seven but it was faster than ever before and what how much faster would he have run through hurdle 10 in the finish line if he didn't chop that and we were able to make the technique adjustment but it, it just ha- it just happens so there's 10 hurdles in a typical 400 yes, race yes so when he gets so you you think when he gets to number 5 at that point it just kind of like things just take over meaning just he's just in that flow state and he just goes well back back then that was the model yeah you know so it, by, by about hurdle 5 is there now what would that be today if you had to pick like what like at what hurdle do you find that they're like, is there a point where you're like they're in the clear or do you find that that's just relative to each athlete? Some start off better, some finish better. Yeah. The, the finish is key. Uh, so I, I think about, well, I think about a lot of the events as backwards mm-hmm. in nature. So I think I always have the end in mind. So whatever we're doing in the early part of the season, we're thinking about hurdle eight, nine, and 10 for sure. So the high fatigue, basically comes on through hurdle six and seven. I mean, you're really starting to go into acidosis at that point, especially at the rate of speed that, for example, Chris or Janelle would be sprinting mm-hmm. in. And and so for Chris, it was more of a long, slow buildup of acidosis because because that's how we trained. The training model helped to feed that, to be prepared for that, even technically. Whereas Janelle, it was you know, that acidosis curve is going to go up a little faster mm-hmm. and then we have to deal with it late. I didn't realize she's a local girl. She went to yeah. Sarnak? Yes. Um, so what, what, what is she, so what did she win this year? I mean, I won't read all these. I'm sure you can rattle them off the top of your head, but you know, for, for like, what did she accomplish? She's a senior or has just graduated? She, she just graduated. Uh, and this was technically the second semester that I had her because she had a, she had used the indoor um, piece of her eligibility and then COVID hit. So, so mm. she used her final, uh, you know, she cleaned up some coursework and still was eligible for this pass outdoor. So it was, it was, uh, it was good to have her for that record holder in the 400 meter hurdle. Yeah. That's so she has, this is the school record. Yeah. I believe, I believe she had broken her own record in the past two spring semesters four, four times. Her okay. own, yeah, her own record. So. Um, I remember go, like you go in and you see the uh, the wall there at you know, and I I didn't realize at the time I was standing next to it. Uh, you know, uh, Montisha Prather. Yes. So she yeah. was up there, um, or Prather. I always mess yeah. her name up, but she, I, I looked up and she was right next to me. I'm like, wait, you're up there? She goes, oh yeah. And and I don't know yeah. if her record's still up because I'm looking at this girl and it looks like some of the the races might have been similar, but she had a record there for a while. And there was obviously Virk was up there. I think you know in quite a few of them. Yes. Um, it's always kind of cool though, when you see like, at least even just like a school record, is that something obviously they're trying to beat all the time is like, you get in the sport, you want to beat records, right? I mean, I don't think anybody, anybody gets in, be like, ah, I just want to like try my best and come in fourth. You know, I think I, when you get to college level, I feel like they're all trying to sure. peak performance for them. Um, so when I talk, well, I, I, I don't want to ask that question. We've kind of asked, like, what's your, um, for coaching philosophy, we talked about like holistic and then you kind of shifted up some stuff. Is there something you try to really focus on with athletes, especially wide variety over many decades, like kind of what jumps out to you or what kind of stood the test of time for you? Yeah, I think health is the number one uh, piece. So, you know, if the athlete is available, then we're able to train. 
mm-hmm. whether you are, you know, development level, which I was, as I noted, hopefully before, as I was recruited on campus by a senior to come out as a development track and field athlete. I think what helped me aspire was health. I maintained good hygiene and did what my coach said, basically. Uh, so I was able to run pretty fast off of just doing those things. And mm-hmm. like Verky's, the crossover was uh, my teammate became Verky's, my four by four teammate became Verky's teammate. Oh, okay. So like freshman, yeah, senior kind of. Matt LaPiccolo was behind me. I graduated. Matt stayed on board and, and trained, and Verky started. Um, so um, among a few others that had crossover. So I, th- I think that's what's been a core piece for me. Um, you know, fi- I guess physiologically is, is to make sure people are in a good state of being or else if you come and you're stressed, you know, maybe the, the dog died or, you know, g- grandma passed or so- something like that. You know, these days we want to know about that. Back then you just kind of like sucked it up and yeah. grandma would have wanted me to train today or she would have wanted me to compete today. Now you don't know. You have to be a little more sensitive and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, with the high, uh, level of competition or the high, if you have a high training day, then you might not give what is required of you. So it's okay to take a day because we'll ca- we'll catch you up. Yeah. I was gonna say, well, I, there's things I, and this is even athletics. I mean, I did a little bit when I was going to the gym more, but I've, I've even done it in life too, where there's certain, I actually had today. I was like, I was trying to like critically think through something this morning and I, my brain just wasn't there. It wasn't firing. So I was like, okay. And I, and I, I try to read myself and, and change my expectation level instead of saying like, nope, you got to go and you got to try to hit this hundred percent today. And I just know my body or whatever brain body is just not functioning mm-hmm. fully. So then I kind of tailor it down being like, I might only have 70% of the tank today, but I want to make sure I hit a hundred percent of 70%, if that makes sense. So yes. do you find that that's similar with athletics where you just kind of change your expectation or a day where someone's like, you know, those days just show up and everything like the, the, you know, the skies opened up, the seas parted, everything just like, seems like it's working. Those are the days you're like, let's just push it. And usually good things happen. Um, is that something that you factor into the training? Like you just mentioned, someone's, you know, grandma's not doing well. Do you, you know, and say like they may not have it in them, but let's maybe check the box that they showed up today and let's do some light work or technique work or things where it's not strenuous. Is that? Yeah, there's an A, B, and a C plan every okay. day um, for even each event group as well. Okay. Uh, and I definitely, the first years, I always have the radar on because they have to get through their first year, maybe as we know, away from you know, the homesickness, yeah, yeah, yeah. hometown. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very leery of that. And, um, but they'll, you know, some of, I, I have a, I have a woman on the team who's very forward and upfront with me. And mm-hmm. when I'll say to her, I said, you know, how did classes go today? You know, cause I could tell that she would arrive and just have four backpacks on her shoulders and just crawling up the stairs. Like, Oh, I'm just surviving today. And then I'll ask and all of a sudden she'll perk up and no coach, I'm ready to go. Yeah. You know, so she'll be an example of where, Hey, I know how to separate the challenges of academic rigor. I'm here to be physical. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay, let's, you, you get, you know, you will receive a training today. <laughs> yeah. And uh-huh. so, yeah, so your a training is kind of more of like high level peak, like let's try to really push it today. That's like what a would be. Yeah. Like a high intensity day with still skill development in mind. 
so e- even though we might be going 90, 95% effort, mm-hmm. we're still wanting to have the proper biomechanics and hit the right piece of physiology. Because if we do more then physiology isn't, we're not living in the physiological world I want to live in today. Yeah. Um, so how do we adapt to that? If we don't, it probably won't go so well day two. Um, and obviously like I'm just looking at this, this is just the, this is indoor or is this a full woman's track and field team? That is, yeah, that is our indoor and outdoor roster combined. Yeah. So when you look, let's say you have 15 or to 20, um, athletes there, like they all have different personalities, different mannerisms, different ways to approach them. So like, is that, cause when I used to coach um, soccer and basketball, like you could tell the kids you could push, you'd tell the kids you had to be easy on easier on yet. You know, expectations were set different for different kids. Like I'm assuming that like you learn to read the, read the athletes and like, you can kind of push athlete a more than athlete B or athlete B might need a little bit more, you know, maybe, maybe more explanation where one just needs a quick cue and like, I got it. Right. Like, so, I mean, that's just reading and over time. Right. And then still the, you know, being in the third semester back, uh, sometimes I make the mistake and say, well, Janelle's a senior, but kind of not really for me. Mm -hmm. She was only a two semester person for me. So I'm still thinking of her plan in terms of, well, I haven't had her for three years. I haven't had her for several semesters just yet. So that that's where I'm variable. And it takes them a little while to get used to me um, on that because I think they're used to being maybe in a high school program where, all right, everybody on the line, we're doing 10 of these, let's go, and you got to hit this time. I was going to say, is it very individualized <laughs> when they're doing different things? Like kind of like, hey, you're working on this and they're working on something while someone's doing throws here and maybe some athletes are stretching and not necessarily doing, again, maybe, maybe taking off or starts from the block. So, I mean, does everybody kind of just do different things they have to work on? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good example. The perfect example would be block day. So if we have a block day, then I would say, well, you know, upper class, they might need less because if their output is so high, I would say, all right, you know, three block reps is your max today because of your force application. Yeah. Whereas the newcomers who are trying to figure out where I want them to be in the blocks, they might need six or seven because we're trying to acquire a new a new skill. So when someone if someone's were to run, say a 400 meter hurdle, like mm. when you're training, like how often do they go, they, tr- they max out? Like, I mean, is this like, like you're saving that for that ac- output for competition day or are they doing full out sprint work like in the week leading up? Or is it kind of one like, Hey, go 90% today or try to hit this pace maybe. Yeah. I think, I think Galen, what you know from the sport of soccer or other sports that you've mm-hmm. been a part of, that when you have your teammates day in and day out and then coach says, all right, we're scrimmaging. And then you have your game and then you evaluate what that game felt like versus what the inter-squad scrimmage felt like. And there was a percentage that was different. I don't know what the number is, but you might agree with me that the scrimmage amongst your teammates was 80-90 but that game felt almost like one one <laughs> Yeah. And so like, I remember playing sports, like say soccer, like we, we always had a good soccer team and we were like, you go play the games and there, it depends on who you're playing. There's some days, you know, our practices were harder than the game. Mm-hmm. And there's some days where the game was certainly more harder than the practice, but I also felt that we balanced it. Like, let's say we had, 
you know, a game on a Tuesday, Friday, mm-hmm. your Monday would be maybe lax before the game. And then every once in a while, you'd have those days where you like, you went in the practice on a Monday and you didn't have a game till Friday and you had four days. Like you're going pretty hard Monday, Tuesday, I would say even Wednesday. And then really Thursday is kind of a knock around kind of easy day. But there were some days if we had those peak days, like players would go after it because they were competitive and just as much in practice as games. And I think that, that fueled the, the game day aspect where it's like games never were as, in, in certain situations, weren't as difficult. Um, I think as they could have been, had we not gone, mm-hmm you know, at a higher clip, but then you also have to think about like, if someone's going all out, if so, if someone's going all out though, you have to, at some point, like, you know, um, you can only put in so much of that, you know, high peak or level force intensity level before it like can burn you out. Like I'm assuming there's like, I say the tapering, but like how often is someone's running a 400 meter hurdle and is going all out? Like they're trying to top their speed out like is that weekly they're doing that or is that like now eh, we really only save those for yeah I, I mean it's energy system uh bearing so mm-hmm. based on the race model we're trying to train to the race model so we're always cutting and it's a german it's ages old it's a german theory of inter- interval yep um so what we're finding is how much are we actually enacting the amount of reps in these intervals mm-hmm. to what is the performance on Saturday. So if we, if we can know our athletes split times on these shorter or excuse me, less intervals, the smaller bucket, and we're getting performances, we can find that more 80, 90% on a Wednesday that helps translate to their hopefully 100% on Saturday. Yeah. Just like so, that, that yeah, like kind of the taper into the main event. Yeah, but we have to recover that, and that's when we yeah. get better. So if it's a Wednesday, then Thursday, Friday, how do we climb back up from that to go hard again on Saturday? Well, la- last question I was gonna, I'm gonna ask you for, um, I'm gonna kind of, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna tie tie these all in. I'm not gonna get to the mor- memorial, but. What is your, based on right now, going through and kind of going into some of these programs, like what future goal do you have with the program? What's kind of like a vision for, you know, Plastic State, either holistically with the strength and conditioning, track and field, like how you how are you hoping that, that it goes? Yeah, definitely to grow the programs. Um, and with strength and conditioning, with, with my relationships with the coaches and, you know, the athletes that they bring to the weight room, um, I want them to understand how training in the weight room helps them complement what they're doing on the field, you know, the track, the ice, et cetera. Um, and that weight, the weight room isn't number one. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it's going to, it's going to help you be a better athlete. Uh, and with the track and field piece too, it's, it's understanding progression. If you're with me for four years, um, uh, and you, your development level, we can aspire to the different levels of SUNYAC or regional or NCAA, um, and to be patient with that. Um, and as far as skeleton goes, uh, you know, we're getting ready for Milan. Yeah. So I was gonna say it's what, 26? Yeah. 26. And then, you know, and then to, to continue to build the development group to push beyond Milan as well. So, Oh, that's cool. Well, it's exciting. Brett, I had a I had a bunch of follow ups. Maybe maybe round two at some point we can have you on because I think this was good. I got I love I love the nerding out of some stuff on this too. So I feel I feel like we're like getting to the edge where you can bring up 
probably some more of like that philosophy aspect to it. But, um, but yeah, Brett, I appreciate you coming on. And, and again, you know, very big in many facets for people just kind of touched on a bunch of them, but, um, again, it's not, it's not often, you know, we have ties to Olympic athletes too, which is pretty cool. You know, like I said, like a local person that has ties and, you know, is at a high level, you know, watching the Olympics and seeing someone from Plattsburgh, it's kind of like, I had John Mahalan on before too, when he worked with cyclists at one point in New Zealand and like, just, it's kind of cool knowing like the amount of expertise we have in an area like this that people I don't think know of, you know, and you uncover like, no, there's some really smart people up here that are doing some cool things. So, um, but Brett, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, I wish you the best. I know this is a full, full round gig, so I'm sure you're, this is nice that you took the time to hang out with us for a little bit. So, well, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate um, it. All right. And if you want to follow him, reach out, uh, we can put some stuff in the show notes, but again, I, uh, or if you want to go to Plastic State and work with, uh, you at some point as a student athlete, if you're a young person, good place to go. Great school. So absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> um, all right, we'll wrap up there. Episode two, uh, 37 of the Galen Trombley show. We're out. Thank you for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.